Welcome everyone. Welcome everyone. This is the first talk in an extended series. I don't know how long it'll go. I don't want to put an artificial time on it. We'll just go until it doesn't feel valuable to continue. And uh, it's on the Satipatthana Sutta. And we will look at the different uh, foundations of mindfulness within that very carefully and pull these things apart uh, and try to understand uh, at a very subtle level where this sutta is pointing. But let me uh, first say that uh, I would ask you uh, to have read the sutta. It's on our website and it's the translation uh, by uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi and I think that you can uh, understand it pretty easily. It's not a complicated or um, uh, esoteric sutta. So please do read it if you would, and then we'll look at this thing. And tonight we're just going to we're just going to have just a very basic introduction to it, uh, and then next week we'll start, or the week after the next talk series we'll. Uh, pull it apart with a little more detail. <clears throat> so, uh, the, this is an extraordinarily important sutta in our tradition because in all traditions, really, each, every one of the traditions, the Mahayana and Vajrayana traditions, each have a Satipatthana Sutta at its foundation as well. So it's, uh, it's one that's been incorporated into all the traditions. And the reason is, is that it's the application of the teaching. And that's an important point. Uh, many people think it's the whole of the teaching. They can just go and uh, read this particular description on how to meditate, basically, and be off and running. <clears throat> and uh, it does provide the how-tos, which is the application. But it doesn't provide, it's not the teaching itself. And that's an important uh, point that I would like to stress and just spend a little time on tonight. Uh, that the teaching itself is really the Four Noble Truths and uh, some of the, um, perhaps the dependent origination. And uh, if you read the Four Noble Truths, it gives you the basic uh, orientation to the difficulties of life and the causes of those difficulties and how to alleviate the causes of those difficulties so that we won't have the cause of the difficulty. Uh, and so, uh, but then you're left after reading that with, okay, now, so what do I do now? I know that. Uh, it can be an intellectual understanding of it. Very satisfying because it, it gets into our bones when you read it. it. The resonance is very deep within us, but still, it doesn't leave us a way to move this thing. And... Uh, and so uh, what the Buddha did in this sutta is give us a way forward, uh, give us an applicability, an application for uh, how to move this forward. Now, uh, the reason that we can't leave the main body of the teaching behind and just go to this one sutta for our whole reference, which is really how many people apply themselves to meditation. They just meditate. They don't have any understanding of why they're meditating or where the meditating is taking them or the orientation that the meditation is supposed to direct us to it's just 
I need to meditate. They have this deep urge to meditate. That was actually my situation. Uh, and the way it was taught back when I began so many years ago uh, was that the meditation, the mindfulness, the application of mindfulness was good enough. Everything else would kind of follow suit once you had that down. Uh, and it's become secularized uh, in the, the modern world, much beyond just the application of meditation. It's also being applied to various fields of psychology and stress reduction. Uh, you can find, if you, if you Google mindfulness, I don't know how many thousands of entries, but it's very well disseminated among the uh, among the sophisticated uh, people of different disciplines as a remedy for, uh, you know, um, depression, uh, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, or uh, stress in one's life, on and on, chronic pain. But it's secularized. It's cut away. It's a standalone from the teaching. And it was never meant to be like that. It was meant to be an inclusive element within the teaching. But it works secularized. I don't want to say that it doesn't. It does. If you uh, learn to develop an ability to attend mindfully to your thoughts and to your emotional emotions, you will be able to perceive them in a very different way so that they won't be engrossing or as... Um, uh, so identification won't be as strong within them. Uh, but it's still secularized in that way. It hasn't, the whole teaching hasn't been brought and uh, around with it. And the reason that that's important, uh, that the view and intention and that the, uh, the direction uh, that we're going is important, is that when you secularize the teaching, you put yourself firmly in place within that teaching. And the whole of the teaching is to pull you up out of that firm place. So if you're doing mindfulness stress reduction, or if you're doing mindfulness depression, addressing depression in mindfully, you, the sense of you, the sense of self, the vestiges of the identification with self, is very much driving this application of mindfulness forward. And it has benefits, but the benefits will be that it will modify, it will alter certain behaviors within you, but not the basic fundamental problem, which is the very ascendance of self and assumption of self that is behind all the more subtle forms of isolation, separation that most of us feel. And so uh, I don't want to exclude those applications or to say that they're not worthwhile. They are in, in, a, uh, in a culture such as ours to have any remedy, uh, any way that can alleviate some of the psychological difficulties is good. I don't have any problem about that. But I hope we're here and we have gathered for a different reason because there's something in us that wants to go deeper than that. We want to unearth not just the superficial levels of discord and conflict and struggle in our life, but the deepest reaching uh, focus of where those struggles are derived. What's the origin of them, you see? For that, then, you have to bring 
this out of a standalone and bring it into the Eightfold Path. Because the Eightfold Path has that as its directive, has that as its purpose and intention. And so next uh, talk that I give, it will be bringing mindfulness within the structure of the Eightfold Path as a component of the Eightfold Path, not an outstanding link, not the one link that is is primary above all others, because there is no primary link in the Eightfold Path. Each one is equally as important as the other. And so uh, this, this sutta expects us to know that going in. And uh, as I mentioned, the way it was taught early on was uh, I didn't get any of that really uh, until much later in my development. We were just sitting and walking. And uh, I was, you know, very much there for years into my practice uh, before you s sort of step back a few steps and say, wait a minute now, you know, I'm not really that much different than I was. You know, there's been some modifications, some smoothing of the angles, uh, but still, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty much the same person I've always been and believe in myself just as strongly. Uh, so we want to be very careful that uh, we understand how this practice is going and that I'm hoping that the people who come here want to take it in the direction that I'm going to be pointing you, uh, which is the full range of and the deepest uh, component of the Buddhist teaching. And so, so when you start bringing in where we're going in relationship to the mindfulness, we're not trying to become better people. We're not trying to embody ourselves in a more noble way. We're not trying to be standouts in meditation. We're not trying to develop a more arrogant stance within the population and community we're in. We're trying to be more connected. We're trying to be more interconnected. We're trying to let go of some of the boundaries that keep us from, from the recognition of the, common, of the commonality that we all live with. But beyond the commonality, which is a little new agey, basically this, this experience of life is misperceived as, as a separating and isolating component of things that are happening to us. And it's not that way at all. It's a very interconnected and unionized, uh, uh, has a, um, life uh, is derived from a interconnected component that we may misperceive through our eyes. And so mindfulness is in the service of that interconnection, is in the service of the heart, you might say, because the heart can only come and be fully opened uh, within uh, w when the self is in abeyance. So uh, the larger the heart, the smaller the self. The, smaller the, se the larger the self, the smaller the heart. And when you feel the accordion effect of that, you get a strong sense of where this practice is going. And what you need to do is to offer and surrender those parts that stand in opposition to reality. And just very basically, just to give you a sense of those first and second noble truths, just we'll go into much deeper detail at another time, is that uh, there is life and we are uh, we abide in life. There's only one life here, right? We think that there are infinite number of lives, but there's only one life. It's singular, not plural. And what we do with that life is that we constantly have a dialogue about it. 
And that dialogue makes us think that we're separated from it. But really, it's just the dialoguing from our desires and fears as are creating a sense that there's someone back there that's having the dialogue, that's having a problem with the reality that's actually arising. And so I have to, when, I give, when I'm given that particular orientation, what the sense of self does is it tries to do something about the problem of life, not seeing that the very communication it's having with life is the problem. It's assuming that the communication is correct and that there's something actually pr a problem with life itself. You see? And that will never end. You'll keep communicating all along the way about how this shouldn't be that way and this should be. And some of those things you'll actively work to engage and correct. And many of them you'll have no control over whatsoever. And so there'll be disappointment uh, because of your lack of control. And that greater frustration and isolation and sense of being despondent, really. Cynical, actually. Sometimes people get cynical. And I've seen people carry that expression of the teaching years, for years, and that there's no liberation in them. They still struggle with themselves. They struggle with the temperature of the room. They struggle with uh, everything. Remember realizing that the teaching is supposed to be addressing that as it's occurring. And we think, well, the teaching will somehow have a trickle-down effect from my meditation. Well, the trickle-down effect from your meditation is that you release the argument in the moment it's happening. And if that's not happening, then we need to look at how we're meditating. And it's usually from a sense of self. That we're trying to correct reality rather than abide within it. Okay, so people just follow that diatribe a little bit. <laughs> so that's, that's the direction we're going. And so everything now is in the service of that direction. First of all, we have to have had, we know the direction, but we have to have the intention to go there. We have to want to go there. We have to want, compelled by our heart, we have to want something more than our individuation in life, our separation from it. And so that intention may or may not be with you. It will if you open your eyes and really look at the reality and of the, uh, the reality that you're living and see the limitations of the reality that you're involved in, slowly then the intention for greater interconnectedness will arise spontaneously once we see the limits of the way that we are living. So that's, that's kind of the way it works. I can't scold you into that perspective. You have to work your way into it by seeing that the way you are living isn't working. And then you'll want something else for yourself because love for oneself is what drives this thing forward. Love for you, love for you not having to be in pain, love for your being safe and free of danger, love for your peacefulness, love for your well-being. That's what drives it forward. But first you have to also um, arrange your perspective so that you even know that how to appreciate yourself. Many of us haven't learned that that's even necessary. We think that we can scold ourselves through this. You see, the whole, the whole way we've arranged ourselves within a spiritual orientation has just been profoundly either profoundly um, 
uh, skewed. Uh, and so we, I mean, just doesn't it make sense? Doesn't it make sense that you're not going to be able to do this from a sense of isolation, that no matter how much you work in isolation, all that does is make you more isolated? And so you okay, so I have to change. I have to change paradigms, as I spoke about last week. I have to change directions here. I want more for myself than just that. And so when you're on board with the direction and the intention, then this sutta will start speaking to you. Until then, it's uh, just more disorientation. And so I'll have more to say about that in the next lecture, as I mentioned. But let's go into this one, this uh, Satipatthana Sutta, Sati, Sati meaning awareness or mindfulness. Mindfulness is the Buddha's Pali word for awareness, sati, and patanya. Patanya is a foundation, the foundation for awareness, the foundation for awareness. Uh, and it, this sutta was chanted for 500 years. Uh, and first of all, many people, experts, as I read, not being one of them, I can just have to read what the experts say. They say that uh, it was actually not a single sutta, but a number of different suttas that was combined over time uh, because there are a number of exercises, like a dozen or more exercises in here, uh, about uh, the applications of mindfulness with, uh, and different exercises within each application. And so it's a kind of interesting uh, conglomeration of a mixture of suttas. Now, like any uh, book, uh, I want to caution literalism, uh, and you, or you can become a, a, a stubborn, conservative Buddhist uh, in your own right. That quality of mind exists within every tradition, and I, you can certainly find it in with this one. Even though views and opinions are forefront of what the Buddha cautioned us against, still, I don't know. We, we seem to forget that. But my job is to keep us pointed to the truth of liberation, not to form judgments and opinions about everything. So the, the important thing when you read any sutta is that you don't really know what he said. Okay? It was chanted for 500 years before it was even written down. Now I suggest if you want to find out how clearly something is translated over 500 years, you tell your daughter or son something about your life and have them pass that down and see what 500 years of that story does to the story itself, okay? So I don't necessarily follow the fact that this is all, uh, you know, pure, absolute, pure Buddha speaking. And so we have to work our way into this a little bit. And we have to bring what's relevant uh, that is being said into the times. Into, the, in the, into our contemporary situation, ask us what, what steps forward and what seems so arcane and disorienting that we, uh, this, is, this must have been 2,500 years, something that they, some cultural abnormality there. So uh, to, to keep that kind of lightheartedness when you read any sutta, uh, but especially this one because it's so um, highlighted in this tradition as opposed to other suttas. And uh, it's an important one. So let's start looking at what 
a foundation is. I think that's a good place to start. What is a foundation? This is the foundation for mindfulness. So we're going to look at what mindfulness is and we're going to look at what a foundation is. And so I looked up the qualities of what the, the word definition is. What's a foundation? And one of the definitions is that it holds everything in place. If you think of a foundation of a building, everything rests upon the foundation. And uh, so I, I tried to adapt uh, what, what this sutta could mean in reference to each of these definitions. So in, in terms of um, holding everything in place, you might think of awareness as, hold, as the thing that holds everything. It, it, doesn't, uh, it, it never misses a beat. There's nothing that is outside of awareness. It's just that we and our um, contracted view don't necessarily connect with the awareness that's always present. And so the foundation, the foundation is awareness itself. That's the founding stone. That's a, that's, nothing can be uh, outside or of awareness. Everything is held within it. And I hope that as I give you exercises and homework in the course of this sutta, I hope that you begin to um, appreciate and welcome that particular quality of awareness forward. Even now, as you sit here, if you just simply release the tension to think in any kind of discordant way and just allow yourself to enter your body, you can see that immediately awareness is present in your body. So why wasn't it there a minute ago before I suggested that fact? You see? It's because you simply focused in something that was unable to see the awareness that was being held within, and that's thought. So you're either thought provoked and induced, or your awareness, or you're abiding in awareness. Those are the two possibilities. There isn't a third. And so you can see how much of our life we have given over to the translation and struggle and irritation and resistance that we call ourselves to life, rather than to what life offers, which is awareness, which is a seed in awareness. If we want to come forward and just be quieter in ourselves, then awareness is where we'll take our seat. If we want to struggle and be individuated and to be, have a problem with everything that goes on, then you'll have yourself, but you won't have awareness. You'll have your distance, you'll have your isolation, you'll have your loneliness, and you won't have interconnectedness because that's what thought will do to us. That's, what it, that's the place that it will hold us in and within. And from that point of conditioning, we think we can think our way out of thought by just putting more subtle or sophisticated thoughts on top of it. And the thought of being quiet, or the actual practice of being quiet, ter, never occurs to thought. The louder it yells, the more it feels like it's in control of its own direction, and therefore moving in a right direction, which is actually the wrong direction. The right direction being quieter, not more noisy. You see how disturbingly out of balance this whole thing is? And this sutta is just supposed to invite us into a different orientation. It's a welcoming, it's a welcome mat. So it's not a, oh my God, this, I've got to do this. I've got to go to some charnel ground and look at dead bodies. And I've got to, you know, which is in there. Which brings me to another point. 
<laughs> which is, we're th this is mostly spoken to monks. I mean, much of the Buddha's teaching is around, is to other monastics. And having been a monastic myself, I know, you know, you, you have a lot of lust. And so looking at corpses and you know, burned bodies kind of helps you with that lust a little bit. But not that this is a, but mostly this is a monastic, these exercises are more monastic. So I'll try to make them lay oriented, which doesn't mean that they'll become simpler and easier and lightweight and a secondary. No, 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 no. We're just different metaphor. We're just using a different metaphor. We're using our lives and a full embrace of our life to enter mindfulness and awareness rather than constricting our life uh, to 272 precepts and a kind of refined way of action, which is a fine life. But for most of us, obviously, for most of us, it's not the appropriate life to live. And so do you think of yourself as a secondary meditator because you're not living the appropriate life of being a monastic? Oh my God, if you're doing that, you haven't listened to anything that we've been saying here. This is a full embrace of the, of the spiritual. The life we are living is a full embrace. You don't need to back off and do anything except fully own the life we are living. If you're willing to do that, it will be as spiritual as any life that you could possibly live or conceive of. Better than any life you could possibly conceive of because it's the life you're living, not the one that you're conceiving. So first I want to make sure and assure everyone that they're in the right place, the right orientation. That they need not go anywhere or do anything. But there does need to be a profound inquiry, a profound uh, intentionality to one's life. In which this life is going to be used not in the service of family and in the service of job and in the service of doing good, but the profound intention to use one life to heal the sense of separation into interconnectedness. And then everything falls into that. Family, job, everything falls into that. But that's not the primary reason we live for family or job. We live for interconnectedness. And unless we have that as a primary reason. And everything gets better from that primary objective. What you don't think you're your spousal relationship will be better once you want interconnectedness as opposed to isolation and loneliness. See, it'll be, bring family right along with it. But that has to be paramount. That has to be the primary urge of one's life. And so we have to, there may be some rearrangement or looking or introspection that we have to do here to, to get ourselves into the right orientation of where this thing is moving us. So the second uh, um, definition of foundation is that it's something that can be built upon, right? A foundation. So uh, this is very interesting because these foundations, and there are four of them, and we'll go through each one of them, spend a few weeks on each one, are uh, contact points for our awareness. Areas, but those contact points are not just, okay, I'm with my body, you know, now so what? Let's go on to mind, and now, okay, so what? Now feel, you know, these, <laughs> these are profound questions that we're involving ourselves in. We are with our body, what's the body? What is this thing? 
we open this thing up. We don't keep it within the conceptual model of our previous understanding. It's like we're first graders in this thing. What's the body? Entering the body leads to an exploration, leads to a wonderment, leads to a new orientation of what life is. And as we bring that wonderment, that curiosity and the subtlety of our investigative uh, orientation and discovery into each of these foundations, they open up into the majesty, the wonder, the enormity of something that has been held in place conceptually, limited conceptually. Saying it's the body limits you to 170 pounds of whatever it is. But when you open it up, it becomes, oh my God, this is wondrous, this is amazing. And component experiences within that wonderment start happening. Lights and sounds and nothing that meets the physical, medical um, anatomy lessons of science. No, no, this is something far more mystical than anyone has ever known. And yoga is supposed to be like, I know some of you are yoga teachers and I would suggest that you use yoga as union. Yoga means union. So where does your teacher teaching meet the yoga postures in terms of union or is it a physical exercise for God's sake? Because it's really something how, how we've limited and, and uh, ratcheted what yoga could be into some kind of calisthenics, sun, sun salutations. Let's do a dozen of them get our heart beating. I just, I just, the, the spirit of the sacred needs to enter what we're doing in our life. Let's invite that in. And this is an invitation, an invitation of the sacred coming into everything that we have taken in as just being uh, so certain of, right? You're so certain of what you are and who you are and your limitation and your values. You're so certain we're also certain of what the mind is in this thing that I have to carry around with me and seems like I own it, but I can't quite find myself the owner of it and all of that. And yet we're so certain of this thing. We're so certain as the day, as the alarm goes off, what the day will hold and getting out of bed. All of this certainty is what makes it so secular, so individuated, so boring. And can we invite a new a new curiosity into what we have been certain about. You see, and to do so, we're going to have to go through the certainty, the rigidity, because the certainty was formed because we need, we need it. We need it. We need the, to be protected. We need, the mind feels the need. When you have a sense of self, you need protection because the sense of self in its isolation perceives threat outside of it. So, in order to make threat lessen, it secures knowledgeable bits of information about things, and therefore life becomes less threatening. But the more we box ourselves in with a less threatening, more knowledgeable life, the less wonder and mystery and sacredness there is. So which direction do we want to go? Which way are you going to invite your life? You see, if it's self-improvement, then fine. You know, just do a little self-improvement and stay isolated and die isolated because in character you will die. I'm trying to get your attention here. (laughs) (laughs) 
So you think, well, okay, now wait a second here. How do I make this thing sacred? How do I make my life sacred? Because it's all sacred. Everything is sacred. How could something not be sacred? We don't have to go somewhere to make it more sacred. We don't have to read texts or chant Sri Ram. Just be quiet and it gets sacred. Unfortunately, the quieter we are, the more fear arises because the less certain things become. You see the dynamics? The less certain things become, the more insecure we become. The more insecure we become, the more frightened we are, and the more noisier we become from the insecurity. Got it? That's why we're noisy all the time. We won't let ourselves be quiet because it scares us to have things unformed. But as we begin to cross that line from time to time and to open ourselves to the raw vulnerability of the world in wondrous torture, like hey, the hey, my God, you know, to be buried under a building. And without seeing the ABC or NBC or one of the news commentators rebuke everyone who's trying to help for not getting in there fast. This is as fast as they can. They got a single airport. It's Haitia. It's not Washington, D.C. It's Haiti. Because no one can stand the pain of that event. No one's willing to find the sacred in that kind of gruesome detail. And yet the sacred is there in death as in life. We'd rather have someone reprimanded. Right? Because then, then we can do something about an earthquake. If we can reprimand enough, we can keep the earth from cracking open. It's not going to do, you'll, we all, Hopefully not in our lifetime, but at some point this place will rupture, won't it? Something that can be built upon. It's also another definition for foundation is a supportive ground for us. And awareness, after a while, as we have infused so much our life into the materiality of life and seen it just dissipate, getting old age, changing, falling away, losing it, having death, all of the different ways which as we infuse into life and inevitably the vase breaks, our favorite cup cracks. Again, we'll, what did you do? Why did you, how did you? Not just the fact that things crack. It's the law. Cracking happens. It's the law. And so as we infuse, put less and less of our focus on the grasping of things, which is what a self does, grasp things, because it's a thing, it relates to things. If you're a cat, you relate to cat. If you're a thing, you relate to things. 
You don't want to be a thing relater, you can't be a thing. <laughs> and so as we focus less and less on things, and which is what Buddhism is supposed to be, which is what much of these exercises in the Satipatthana Sutta, that's where we're supposed to be going. Less thing-oriented. Because it's, they're not guaranteed. They're, you can't, they're, the promise isn't upheld in a thing. I counted on this to give me happiness. It doesn't, it's not upheld. So much of Buddhism shows you that investing in things doesn't work. Okay? And so where does, where does the investment go if it doesn't go in things? Well, when we surrender, it goes into awareness. It goes out of things into that which holds things. The supportive ground. And the next quality of a foundation is that it's load-bearing. Right? A foundation holds what's on top of it. And awareness, believe me, is load-bearing. It can take all of you. It can take everything. doesn't flinch. doesn't flinch. We flinch, but it doesn't flinch any more than the air that surrounds you flinches at your weight or your actions. It doesn't flinch. And when we allow ourselves to rest in what holds us, we may lose our image of ourselves, which is a which is nothing, which at the point that you come to, at the point when you realize that this isn't about content orientation, you're very ready to assume and allow awareness to come forward because the image means nothing to you at that point. And you lose no memory. You can still say who you are, where you're from, have a conversation. Everybody said, well, he's, he seems normal. Like, <laughs> I was with my family this weekend. So they all came down. We were having a memorial service for my older brother who died in December. And uh, so we, you know, they kind of do provocative things to get me to. And so I just wouldn't. I wouldn't argue with them, you know. If they, I just wouldn't. I wasn't going to. And one of my nieces, my niece who's 32, she came, she said, oh, well, you, you sure seemed normal. <laughs> I felt very successful. <laughs> so another, I'm just playing with the foundation concept, right? Just playing with foundation. I'm only on page one. <laughs> the foundation. You see, it holds, it's the underlining principle. If, don't think of it as a building now, but say the, say the foundation of your philosophy, or the foundation of your 
It's the underlining principle on which you operate. And, and with each of these foundations, we're going to move until they reveal the underlining principles on which each foundation is held, which holds all of life. But through the foundations, you can pursue the discovery of those very basic principles on what we, and how we live, what's the essence of life through this foundation. And how, when looked, when you, when you start seeing how they, they hook into a particular assumption that moves into the next assumption and affects the next, and pretty soon you have a whole being with history and story and how did I, how did this happen? You'll begin to understand how that happens because you'll see the assumptions all along the way. And it's there. See, because the Buddha isn't suggesting that he, he doesn't give a recitation here. He says, he gives, he gives an encouragement for discovery. Come and look. Come and look. E pasiko, opanaiko. Come and look. Come and discover. This is not... guru-oriented. This is not a teacher-led here. This is not, I know and you can't ever know. This is, come on. Let's all come do this together. And the final quality of foundation is that it's reliable. Right? Some of you have relied upon your judgments, your attitudes. You've relied upon your contempt, your anger. How reliable has all that been for you? Has it ever allowed you to come back into the situation, to rejoin it again? But mindfulness is always there for us. It always shows us in a discerning, it gives us a, a, the ability to discern a, dire, a new direction, if we so wish. It doesn't force us into that new direction. It says, you go left, bruise. You go right, spaciousness. It's a hell of spaciousness. <laughs> hmm. uh, again and again, we keep choosing it. We keep choosing the wrong path. Because mostly our foundation, our reference point, isn't the foundation of mindfulness. It's the sense of I. That's our reliable source. And the blind beliefs and the assumptions of I. That's how, what's that we rely upon? That's my foundation. To hell with this. I can't trust that because I'm not in control in that way. I'll go where I'm in control. So you begin to see and hear what is being asked from us to move into the sacred. So I ask you, how much do you want it? Because you can't have it unless you do. That's the way it works. Your intentions won't form sufficiently. Your direction won't be clear enough. 
your confidence won't be steady enough. Your wavering will be, you'll be too much timidity. And yet it's here. It's accessible, it's reliable. Not, nothing has forsaken us, ever. For a single instant, we have never been forsaken. Nor could we ever be forsaken. All the weeping for naught were being held within our tears. And it's so simple because it's just stepping out of the delusion of self. If there was something real about it, then it would be a terrible, well, it couldn't be done. But it's just the illusion. It's like giving up a mirage, taking off the glasses of the virtual reality and say, well, I guess I have to go back to my mother, dress the problems that are here instead of pretending and reading comics my whole life. So this is, this is just the beginning. So we're, just, we're just stepping forward into this realm. It's the application, the application. Where, the application. You see, it's so beautiful because now we're being called upon to energetically move. Enough of the theory. We've heard the theory, the four noble truths, great, everything, you know, God, that's great. Now can I just sit back and do nothing now? No. Energetically we bring called forward. This is the application of it all. And I look forward to accompanying all of us on the trip together. Can we have any comments? I'd be happy to do the best I can with them. Yes, sir. Can become. Yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, his question uh, concerns uh, the statement I made about as the mind becomes quiet, often there is a reaction to quiet, a fear reaction to quiet, because you feel like you feel slightly different than you did when you were noisy, mm-hmm. and uh, there can be a kickback. And then you can get yourself very noisy again by doing a lot of things in your meditation and uh, feel very much in control and really be moving in an adharmic way against the dharma. But feeling in control uh, because uh, you're um, staying away from quietude. So, I mean, if you just look at it, if you just look at it in terms of See, I, like, I think there's a, a spiritual logic uh, that, uh, that you have to uh, start practicing in yourself so that you can ask questions about how and what you're doing to see if it's oriented in the way you want to go. So, uh, since the sense of self is built upon its resistance, noisy resistance to life, it's just an echo of 
of something of a disagreement. I don't like this. I want that. And this moment is no good. It's move, I really want to live a, a few moments ahead where something good will be arriving. And, I mean, if you just look at any state of mind, like boredom, it says this moment isn't worth paying attention to because it's boring. So I, I'll wait through this boring time until something more exciting comes. So it's a waiting period. And most states of mind carry some uh, disposition of that the future is far more uh, pleasant, would be far more agreeable to you than this moment. So this moment is a wasted moment. Okay, so it's not worth abiding in. Now, why is the self doing that? Because if you did start discounting that message, you would have to become quiet because most messages have to do about the regret you have of the past and the future expectation. And so the quieter we become, the more embracing this moment becomes. The more we enter this moment, the quieter we become because we're not talking ourselves out of this moment, right? Now, as we enter the moment quietly, the funny thing about the moment is that you can't enter it. You can argue with it. You can circumvent it. You can struggle with it, but you can't enter it quietly because the definition of the moment is that life is arising in uniform, uniformly, as a single presentation in its immediacy. And therefore, your boundaries have to disappear in order to enter it. And so much of the struggles we do to come into the moment are just that. We keep struggling with the moment so we won't have to enter it. The logic being that if we keep struggling to become present here and now, that well, at some point the sense of self will enter the here and now and be able to abide in its own freedom, have its own enlightenment. It doesn't happen. I mean, just look. You're not, you haven't done anything wrong. You just, just look and see if it's happened to you. See, it takes a radical shift here. So I'm calling, I'm asking you, some, I'm not speaking to your mind, because that will just create more struggle. Oh, I'm not doing it right. God, I've got to change now. He's like, oh my God, I'm, uh, you know. I'm, I'm speaking to something else in you and asking it to come forward. It's time, come on. Come on. We can do this. Just don't put the wrong organ in charge and we can do it. <laughs> so as we, as we say, okay, well, see the whole focus of our, our whole understanding of where we go immediately is the expression of this mind, its relationship to everything else. And so we go, oh, so where's the present moment I'm looking for? You know, so, okay, so that's not... <laughs> so let's come down a little bit here. Let's, let's move it more. See, just let your, let your eyes soften so that they're not trying to find the present. Right, so this, now you just, just let it... Well, where, what do you have to do? You just, you just release the resistance that we have to it. Stop your argument with it. Now, get this logic down. I'm much more important to me that you are never fooled again than that you pick it up immediately. 
I mean, I would love it if you would all, you know, waken as I speak, but much more important is that you're not fooled because the mind will continually set a new course of struggle for you. Now, doesn't that, I mean, just get the logic of it because the logic is so beautiful that it's so, it almost is like rapture. It's like so, so exquisite. Okay, so, I, okay, so this thing has to be quiet. I got it now. So I'm not going to invest in my thinking. I'm not going to allow thoughts to translate life. And then life, it, it's not, see, it, it, you welcome enlightenment in. You will welcome enlightenment in. You don't find it. So you, don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have to find wakefulness. You just have to be willing not to sleep any longer. See, that's, it's so close. And what I want to show you is that there's nothing wrong with what anyone is doing. So you're, you're not disoriented. You don't have to first heal your family relationships and tend to, you know, your psyche's difficult. Just stop all that noise. Be finished now. Know yourself the first time. Yeah. But the uh, the sense of self can get very frightened. His trump card is fear. And so as it gets quiet and it starts losing its world of noise and what, I mean, if we've lived with it, it's very interesting. Uh, if I can just, I know I'm not finishing my sentences, but uh, I saw a picture of a, uh, maybe a three or four year old child being taken out. Uh, the court uh, was taking the child away from the mother because the mother who lived in Minnesota, I believed, had sent her naked three year old out doors, uh, just nude, and just, uh, to, you know, just thrown them outside. And so uh, the child had obviously had an abusive three years, but the picture in the court scene that was being taken was the child being taken from the mother who had abused him, and the child was leaning to grab hold of the mother so that it wouldn't have to go into the unknown situation that it was being taken to. That was a snapshot. So that's, that's the sense of self, you see. You've abused, you, we have more bruises than we can possibly imagine. Being thrown out in Minnesota's icy temperatures would be a welcoming, far beyond the way we treat ourselves. And yet we still lean into ourselves for, for protection, for sanity, when we have never allowed ourselves that 
at all. And at some point you think, I don't know what I'm giving up, but I don't really care anymore. Because where I'm, I mean, I don't know where I'm going, but it doesn't matter because what I'm giving up, I can't sustain any longer. And so wherever, wherever it is, I don't. I used to think of it in terms like this. Even when I was a child, I'd say, well, you know, if there's a spaceship, and I wasn't having a bad life, I, didn't, I wasn't abused and all that, but if I had, a spaceship came down, I'd be the first one on it. Because <laughs> wherever it was going, it had to be better than what was here. I didn't care where it was going. Because I always already felt, I already felt the torturous struggle of what life is and how what we make it. And so, at some point, at some point, the fear doesn't hold you back. For a long time, the fear forces you back into the noisy situation environment we're in. At some point, it just doesn't do it anymore. I don't care. Fear, come on, I don't care. I don't care. You're not being stubborn or resigned or despairing. You're just, that's it. You're not, that's, it just can't hold you there anymore. You're fed up. That's it. It's not worth it. I forgot the question, but I think. (laughs) Maybe one more before we. Is there another? Yes, sir. No, uh, he says he's been telling his son to think for himself and he's wondering if there's a problem with that word. I, you see, you can't stop someone from forming themselves into a sense of self. That's, in fact, that's the same way that the environment, to become, become competent within the environment, you have to have a strong sense of self. You have to have a knowledge base, you have to know how to navigate this thing, and, and for most people that means developing a strong sense of self. But then you begin to feel in, through adulthood, usually not in childhood, but um, in adulthood you start feeling what you formed, what you created for yourself, and it's, then it starts rubbing. It starts rubbing you the wrong way. And so you say, well, now you have to go undo the work you did. But almost everyone has to do the work they did, right? We don't want the child to be unformed because they wouldn't, they wouldn't have any way to manage themselves in life. They need that. They need a sense of self. So then when you become competent and strong and stable enough, then you can let that go. So to think for yourself is a beautiful uh, invitation to be independent, uh, in, independent of other people's uh, power, right? So it's the beginning, even though it's thought, it's still the beginning of a critical way of looking at life and inviting a curiosity for oneself into life. So I, I think that's a, a nice way to train your, your children. I think that's enough, huh? Okay, my friends, good. <laughs>